Y'all don't realize how heavy this thing is. It is a lot heavier than it looks. <laughs> so do y'all have your Bibles? Go ahead and open up to John chapter 4. So while you're doing that, i uh, just tell you a couple weeks ago, Jordan and I had the opportunity to go to a pastor's appreciation event uh, that was held by Ambleside School. It's a small Christian school here in Marion, uh, and it was a great event. We got to attend their chapel service, and that was amazing and humbling all at the same time to see kids as young as seven, eight, nine years old reciting entire passages of Scripture, entire passages out of like the Sermon on the Mount. So it was amazing to see the children hide God's Word in their heart and humbling at the same time because I know I haven't done that quite as well. But another thing that we got to do while we were there, uh, we got to take a tour of the school. And so we got to go in some of the classrooms and see what they were working on. And so we want, went into one particular classroom and there was a girl there who attends here at the journey with her family. And so the teacher knew this, and she said, hey, would you like to introduce uh, our guests? And she said, sure. And so she said, hey, this is Jordan. He's our pastor. And this is Chad. He's our sometimes pastor. <laughs> so if I haven't met you, I'm Chad. I'm the sometimes pastor here, and today is sometimes. I think I'm going to have a, a business card made up with uh, sometimes pastor. So... Um, we are, again, in our fourth week of the woman on the well, right? Woman at the well, right? We're in John chapter 4, and so a couple weeks ago as we were plotting all of this out, uh, we had assigned me to, to preach this particular Sunday, and so I came home and I was telling my kids, hey, I'm, I'm going to be preaching uh, on whatever today is. And so my daughter, she asked, well, what are you preaching on, Dad? And I said, John chapter 4, the woman at the well, and she's like, how can this be? And she, because she had known, right, that we had just finished that previous week in John chapter 3 and that we would be starting John chapter 4 that next Sunday. And it reminded me of when Gabriel comes to Mary, right? And she's got this perplexed look, like, how can this be that I'm going to be the mother of the Savior, right? And so do you remember what Gabriel said to Mary? He said, nothing is impossible with God. So here we go. We're going to jump into our fourth week of the woman at the well. So let's recap where we have been, all right? So the first week we saw Jesus encounter the woman, right? He doesn't avoid her. He has every reason to. But we see Jesus, he transcends these cultural boundaries, right? He lovingly pursues a people that are far off from him, right? We saw that no one is so bad that they're without the hope of a Savior. And that's a central theme that we have seen run through this passage with the woman, right? And we've wrestled with the question of how do we personally, how do we see the unseen and the marginalized people, right? So part two, we saw Jesus meet the spiritual need of the woman, right? He pressed into her wound. He saw her brokenness. He saw that she was seeking satisfaction in things that ultimately wouldn't satisfy her, right? Those things would fail her. We saw Jesus, not only did he forgive her sins, he didn't just forgive them and then send her on her way, but he healed her, right? And we saw that we are healed when we experience the glory and the holiness of God. And only in that, only in him do we find that satisfaction. And then last week, right, we saw that our worship matters. It matters whether or not you wear a suit when you preach, right? Right? 
I was very tempted to put on a suit this week, but it's like 90 bajillion degrees outside, and I didn't want to do that. So, but we saw that worship is more than just music, right? It's more than just our gathering time here, but that our lives are to be lives of worship, right? That we worship in spirit, in truth, because Jesus brought about something better, right? He brought about his indwelling spirit in us that we don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to go to a mountain, a certain place. We don't have to have the blood of an animal in order to worship him, right? We can worship him because his spirit is inside of us. And in order to really worship, we have to know the truth, right? That he is that truth. So we're going to continue on in John chapter 4. So we're going to start reading in verse 21, but we're really going to focus today starting in verse 27. But this is what God's Word says. It says, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In verse 27, at this point his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking to a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to him, said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your spirit that is within us, God. We thank you for this nameless woman and how you transformed her with the gospel. And like her, God, you pursue us, you have healed us, and you call us to yourself. And so we pray that we would be transformed in the same way by your grace. We thank you and we love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. All right. 
So as we jump in, let's remember some of the context here with this woman. She was an outcast from society, right? She had a checkered past. She was wounded. We saw a couple weeks ago that Jesus read her mail, knew exactly what her sin struggle was. But Jesus met her deepest need, which was spiritual, right? That she needed salvation. And so Jesus reveals to this woman that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one that they have been waiting for. And this is interesting because he's not revealed this to any of the Jews yet, but he's revealed it to this woman, a sinner, right? A Samaritan woman, right? And so the disciples, they walk up at this time. And so most scholars believe that the disciples, as they're coming up, as they're coming back, they hear Jesus make this pronouncement to the woman. And so that's where we're going to start. So there, there are two parts of this story with the woman, and there's one part with the disciples in the middle. So we're going to dive in with both parts of the woman before we turn our attention to the disciples. All right? So look at me. Look, yeah, look with me. Don't look at me. Look with me again at verse 27. Right? At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? And so we saw in John chapter 3, Jesus met with Nicodemus, and that's very understandable, right? For Jesus to meet with a prominent religious leader like Nicodemus, that was pretty typical for him to do. But for rabbis in this day and age, it was not typical for them to speak with a woman, Right? They didn't have conversation with women. Women were generally considered second-class citizens. But even with that, these rabbis would typically take their, their piety, their morality, their concerns for that, and they would take it overboard. So much so that even a typical rabbi wouldn't even have a public conversation with his wife. So can you imagine rabbi and his wife out in public, and he doesn't say a word to her? Right? So given that, Right? Rabbis wouldn't be talking with this woman, but especially one that has such a past as this woman. And it's obvious that she has this past because she's out here in the heat of the day drawing water when no one else would normally be out there. She doesn't want to be with the other people right? when they come in the morning when it's cool. And it's because she's been ridiculed. She's been outcast. Right? So Jesus saw this woman, and he meets her greatest need. And from a social standpoint, there's nothing at all that Jesus could ever, ever gain from this woman, right? If you're trying to build a movement, if you're trying to build uh, a great collection of people to support you, you're not going to this type of woman, right? Because she's only going to bring you down. People are going to look at her and say, why in the world are you doing that? And that's exactly what the disciples are doing, right? He goes against even his own disciples' expectations for a religious leader, right? They expect him to go to somebody like Nicodemus to build credibility. But instead, Jesus interacts with this woman not because of what he can gain from her, but because there's a need there, right? And we see this pattern all throughout Scripture. Look with me at Luke 15, chapter 2. This will be on the screen. We see this pattern from Jesus, and it says, Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Right? So he's hanging out with people who are deemed probably not worthy of the gospel. Right? Think to Luke chapter 8 and the woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. Right? She's so desperate that she reaches out and grasps the clothing of Jesus, hoping that she would be healed. Right? And when that happens, does Jesus shrink back from her? No, 
He doesn't. He moves towards her. He heals her. He cleanses her. And so what does that reinforce for us? It tells us that the gospel is open to all. We saw that all the way back in part one, but that is running through this entire story, that Jesus shows us that no one is so bad that they're without the hope of a Savior. We cannot judge who will respond to the gospel, right? And that's what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples in this moment, and that's what he's teaching us, that we cannot judge who will respond to the gospel. And so the the disciples are probably looking at this through a gender component, through a racial component, but that, that concept, it extends beyond just gender and race, right? Look at what Ligonier Ministry says. This is the ministry of R.C. Sproul. It says, The gospel is not only for the respectable and those who have their lives together. The gospel is also for the outcast, the dysfunctional, and those who have made shambles of their lives. We must welcome all kinds of people to our churches so that they can hear the gospel and experience the Holy Spirit's power in their lives. All right? That's what we preach here at The Journey each and every day, that the gospel isn't just for people who have their lives together, but it's for people whose lives are in shambles. And that's exactly who this woman was. Her life was in shambles, and yet Jesus runs after her. He pursues her. And so for us, do we marvel? Are we surprised that Jesus could love us, that he could save us? Those of us who have our lives in shambles, our lives who are dysfunctional? But even more so, are we surprised, like the disciples, that Jesus pursues those who we would consider undeserving of his grace? Are we surprised by that? So, what does the woman do? Right? She goes back into the city. Look, look again at verse 28. It says, So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Right? So this is right after Jesus has revealed his glory to her, revealed that he is the Messiah. She is probably awestruck, knowing that the Messiah has just revealed himself to her, a sinner, And she comes face to face with the holiness of God. And it is literally a life-changing event. Her life is transformed in this moment. And so what does she do? She leaves her water pot. She leaves the entire reason for her trip to the well. Right? She leaves it right there and heads back into the city. Why? It's because she leaves her physical need because she realizes that her biggest need is spiritual, that her biggest need in that moment is deliverance from sin, right? It's not money, it's not food, it's not shelter, it's not a job, it's not comfort, it's not security, that our biggest need that we could ever have in this life is spiritual. Do we know that? Let me put it this way. Do we live like we know that our biggest need is spiritual, Again, we see this pattern repeated all through Scripture. Look at me with, uh, at Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and he followed him. And so Matthew, 
was a tax collector, he was well off because he was ripping people off on their taxes, living off their backs. He had his life made, right? But he encounters Jesus, and immediately, what does he do? He leaves everything. He gets up, and he follows Jesus. Look at Mark chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Going on a little further, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went away to follow him. So we see John and James leaving their family, right? We have some tight-knit families here at The Journey, right? Some of you are really close with your family. But here we see John and James, right? They get up. They leave their family in order to follow Jesus. Look at Philippians 3, verse 8. This is Paul speaking. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of, sur- of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Again, Paul had his life made. He was a prominent religious leader, had everything that he could ever want, right? Everything that he aspired to. But when Jesus called him and knocked him off of his horse, right, he gave all of that up in order to follow Christ, realizing that his biggest need wasn't his role, wasn't his office, but it was spiritual, right? And so what does the woman do? Look again at verse 29. She tells the men, she tells the people of the village, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And so do you get who she went to? She went to the very people that she was trying to avoid. These were the people who had cast her out. Right? These were the people who she didn't want to be around. They had probably ridiculed her. Right? They probably despised her. And even though that they had wronged her, right, she went to those people and shared the good news. She shared the gospel because that is so much more important than any wrong that she had ever suffered. Right? And so contrast that with Nicodemus. What did Nicodemus do? We really don't know, but it's probably safe to assume he wasn't as bold and went out and shared about Jesus after his conversation, right? And contrast this with the apostles, right? The disciples. They're amazed and surprised that Jesus would even be talking to this woman, right? But this woman, she went to the hard people. She went to the people who had given her grief. She became a missionary the very first day of her conversion because she understood who Jesus was and that that value was too good to keep in. That value was too good for her to keep to herself, even amongst people who had despised her. Right? So skip down to verses 39 again. Right? From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. And so the woman, all she simply does is she shares her testimony. Right? She's probably not a theologian at this point. She probably doesn't have all the understanding of Scripture. She can't connect all the dots. But what she's doing is said, look, I met this guy, and he's told me everything about my life, and he has transformed it, right? Her life has been radically changed, and that is the power of the gospel. We need to remember that she was that outcast, that people could have ignored her because of her past, 
They could have ignored her because of her gender, but the power of the transformation was so radical, right, that it was so evident that people said, holy cow, whoever she encountered has to be the Christ, has to be the Messiah. And so I believe in that guy because I see the power of Jesus to transform this woman. And so many of them believe, right? And so the Samaritans, they go out to him, right? So when the Samaritans come out to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. And so because of the woman's testimony, the, the Samaritans, the townspeople, they go out, right, and they encounter Jesus for himself, for themselves, right? They encounter his holiness, they encounter his glory, and their lives are changed as well, right? They believe, and it's not just because of the woman's testimony anymore, but it's because they have an encounter there. But I want to draw a distinction here. And I don't want us to get caught up on it. So don't get hung up on some believed because of the woman and some believed because they had a personal encounter with Jesus. And so what this teaches us is that there is no set pattern to evangelism. If you look all through Scripture, we see so many conversion stories, right? And every single one of them are different. Think of people like Lydia, right? Think of the Philippian jailer. Think about Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. We just talked about Paul. Think of Paul, knocked off his horse and blinded. I've never met somebody who has come up to give their testimony and said, I was riding on a horse and I got blinded and I got saved, right? But that's because all of our experiences with the Lord are different, right? What's important is that the salvation is one, that they are focused on the object of their salvation and not on the process. It's the object of their faith that matters. You see, every single person here is pointing to Jesus. They're not pointing to the woman. They're not believing and putting their faith in the woman, but they are putting their faith in Jesus, right? So it's the object of their faith. So the, the Samaritans, they believe, right? And they believe that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. Again, re-emphasizing this point that salvation is more than just for the Jews, that the, that the gospel is open to all. And, John, and Jesus is actually going to build on this. He's going to state this explicitly later on in John chapter 10, verse 16, when he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, meaning of the Jews. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will hear, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And so even because of that, that's why we are here ourselves. But the gospel is open to all. It wasn't just reserved for the Jews. Not many of us here, I don't think, have a Jewish background. But Jesus comes to us. He extends his gospel to the entire world. There's a universal scope. And in this story, we see an unlikely woman. She becomes the means of an unlikely people turning to the Lord. All right, so that's the woman, right? She leaves her water pot, she goes and shares. Let's focus in now on the disciples, right? So look at me, uh, look again with me at verse 31. It says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. 
But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the, the disciples are saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Right? So the disciples, that they come back. They've heard Jesus make this pronouncement to the woman. And again, they're more concerned with Jesus trying to get him to eat something. And Jesus enters into this discussion with them, right, where he's going to use physical items in the world, a physical description of the world, in order to teach them about the unseen spiritual world, right? And the disciples, they don't get it. They're looking around like, hey, did you, did you give them something to eat? Right? The disciples don't get it. So my son, Sawyer, right, he believes that the world is divided into two people. There are people like him that are big brain, and everyone else is a bozo, all right? Can you imagine what category his father falls into, right? So don't get big brain about the disciples, right? That we are no different than the, the disciples. We're no different than Nicodemus, right? Jesus has stuff that he wants to teach us, and he's teaching us that his food is doing the will of the, of the Lord. It is accomplishing the Father's work, all right? It is more important for us to be occupied with the work of the Lord than to be preoccupied with our own Needs And so again, we see this pattern throughout Scripture. Look at Job chapter 23, verse 12. Job, after he's lost everything, he says, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Right? Look at Deuteronomy 8.3. This is a famous passage that Jesus will use to refute a temptation from Satan. He says, He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Right? And so that's what is important. Right? Doing the Lord's will. And Jesus is going to make this explicit in John chapter 6, verse 38. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that, all of, that, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That's exactly what he's done with the woman. Jesus set aside his own need in order to meet the spiritual need of the woman. And so what he's teaching us is that God's work is infinitely more important than our own physical needs. It's infinitely more important than anything else in our entire lives. Jesus even gave up getting a drink from the woman Right? He didn't tell the woman, hey, give me a drink first, and then I'll tell you about the living water. Right? No, instead he tells her, he gives her the living water. She drops her water pot, runs off. Right? And at this point, Jesus still hasn't had a drink, and the disciples are trying to get him to eat, trying to get him to drink. Right? But Jesus is saying that he's nourished, he's sustained by doing the work of the Lord. Right? And so we should view our obedience our obedience to the Lord's will, just as necessary as food for our own bodies. We should have that same attitude that we are nourished, that we are sustained, that we grow by doing the Lord's will, that we should have such a passion for doing the Lord's will that we temporarily forget about our own physical needs. 
And it's because everything, everything that Jesus is doing is pointing to the cross. At the end of verse 34, when he says that, uh, that his food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, to finish his work, that's the same word that he's going to use on the cross when he says that it is finished, right? It is finished. When Jesus has finished that work and brought salvation to the world, right, everything is pointing to the cross. So everything about our lives, even above our own physical needs, should point to the cross. And so this is what Jesus wants those disciples to understand. And that's what he wants us to understand. To not be so preoccupied with our own needs, our own desires, that we forget that people have a real deep spiritual need for him. And so why does he want us to get this? Right? He says, lift up your eyes. Look at verse 35. He says, Do you not say that there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I have sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And so he's saying, lift up your eyes, right? Look with spiritual eyes, right? Be aware of what is going on around you. He's saying there's no time to waste, right? He's saying the work is ready now. The fields are white. Right? There's probably grain fields all around. And when grain is fully sprouted, right, it's white. It looks white. But that's telling you, like, do the work now before it spoils. But some scholars are even saying Jesus may be referring to the Samaritans who are coming out of the town. Right? Because it's hot, because it's an arid climate. Most people were wearing white. They were wearing uh, light-colored clothing. And Jesus is saying, look up. Look up. They're coming. Right? Be ready the Samaritans, they're coming. Lift up your eyes. And so he goes into this discussion of sowing and reaping, right? This is an allusion to Amos chapter 9, verse 13. This will be on the screen. This is the Lord speaking. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. So God is saying... To, through Amos, he's saying there will be a day when the person that plants the seeds and the person who uh, reaps the harvest, right, they're going to be doing their work at the same time, right? And so what Jesus is saying, in the physical world, using this physical description of the world that teaches spiritual things, he's saying there's normally a period of time between sowing and reaping, right? We're all familiar with that. You plant a garden, you have to wait a couple months for it to come to fruition, Right? But in Amos, God is saying that there will be a time of spiritual planting and harvest, and it's going to happen at the same time. That he is so sovereign that he doesn't have to wait for the seeds to be planted in order for it to grow and for there to be a harvest. Like, it's going to happen, and it's going to happen now. And so Jesus, he is telling the disciples that, behold, that day is now. What you knew in Amos, what the Lord told you to wait for told you that this day is coming, that day is now, right? It's reminiscent of what he has just told the woman, right? That the hour is coming and now is. And so Jesus is saying, get ready, 
The work is here. And he's inviting us into that work. There is no plan B for the gospel to be spread. There's no plan B other than us. He's not using angels, right? He's not riding it in the clouds, in the sky. He's using us, and he's telling us that the prophets, John the Baptist, Jesus himself, right? They started the work, and it's the disciples. It is us that get to reap those rewards. We get to join in the salvation of others. We get to experience that joy of seeing others come to salvation. Jesus is saying the harvest is ready. The kingdom is near, right? He wants us to have this mentality, right? And this is a mentality that we see in the early church, right? The early church, they understood that doing the Lord's will, that was just as necessary as food. So flip over to Acts chapter 2, right? The end of Acts chapter 2, we see the start of the early church, but we see that they have adopted this mentality that Jesus is teaching the disciples about. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we see the early church. They have this mentality, right? They understand that their sustenance, right? They are sustained by doing the Lord's will, right? That they have a priority, right? Jesus had a priority for the gospel. They have the same priority. They have centered their lives around the gospel, They are gospel-focused. They are focused on the teaching of the apostles, right? They are focused on worship. They have prayer, right? They're gladly meeting the needs of others, right? And that has produced a sense of awe and wonder at the gospel. We also see them acting with a sense of urgency, right? The same thing that Jesus saying, lift up your eyes. The early church, they have that same urgency. They're daily meeting together. They're meeting in the temple They are meeting in homes. And out of this, out of this priority, out of this urgency, evangelism flows forth. Right? They have a culture of evangelism. This is their identity. This is who they are in Christ. They recognize that the harvest is all around them. And so as they go go about their lives, right, they can't help but share the gospel with those around them. Right? And day by day, day by day, souls are being added to their number. Right? And this is even evident even in difficult times. Right? Even when the work gets hard. If you think to Acts chapter 8, what happens? Stephen has just been stoned. Right? He's been killed for his faith. And so the church scatters. Right? And instead of being quiet, right, as the church scatters out from Jerusalem, right? They continue to share the gospel. They can't keep quiet even though it's going to cost them their lives, even though that it's hard, right? 
So look at what the expository commentary says about this. It says, the last, two, the last verses of chapter 2 reveal a community filled with the Spirit, growing in numbers, overflowing with gratitude and charity, a beautiful picture of the transforming power of the Spirit through gospel ministry. This is also a picture of foreshadowing of the life to come. In the community empowered by the Spirit, the eschatological, that's a fun word, kingdom breaks into the present much in the same way that heaven and earth meet in the risen Christ, right? A believing community, a believing community focused on the gospel, praising God, praying, and gladly putting the needs of others first, right? That believing community experiences and shows to the world the reality of heaven here and now. Luke leaves us a model not for how to do church, right? It's not a step-by-step. Luke leaves us a model not for how to do church, but what the people of God should look like in terms of their priorities, their actions, their service, and practice. This is exactly what Jesus is teaching us here, right? This is what Jesus is trying to get the disciples to understand, right? Look at what Chris Watkins says. He says, as C.S. Lewis notes, he says, we praise what we enjoy. And if Christians enjoy God with our time, with our treasure and our talents, with the rhythms and patterns of our lives, then we'll surely declare his excellencies to those around us. That if we enjoy God with our time, our treasure, and our talents, with the rhythms and patterns of our lives, then we'll surely declare, we can't help but declare, his excellencies to those around us. So, as a church, is this who we are? Does this describe us? Are we sowing and are we reaping? Right? The church is the primary vehicle for evangelism. It's here that we are encouraged, we are strengthened, we are nourished through our fellowship in the Spirit. That we are called to worship in spirit and in truth. We are called to worship with our lives. And that's because Jesus has brought about something better, right? He's giving us the living water. And so is our worship, is that just part of our regular Sunday? Is it just something that we go to? Or is it our life that we can't help but declare the goodness of God, what we've just sung about? That he's running after us, right? And we can't help but declare his goodness. So for application, right? This is for all of us. This is for you. This is for me. I need the reminder as well. But will we join the work? Will we make evangelism a priority? Right? Will we move with urgency towards those who need living water? Right? If you're like me, you've probably given every single excuse that you can think of. Right? I don't have time. I'm scared about how they might respond. Right? I don't know what to say. Each and every one of those excuses 
is answered by the woman, right? Do you think the woman didn't have time, right? She made the time. She gave up on her physical need, right? She's going to have to come back and get water because that's necessary, right? They have to have it to drink. They have to have it to clean, to cook, right? She's going to have to come back. But she laid all of that aside because what was most important was going to people and sharing about Jesus and how he had transformed her life. I had a boss one time. It was a new boss, and she thought that we weren't doing a good job, and so the way that she was going to whip us into shape is she wanted us to uh, record every moment of our day. So if you sent an email to a student, she wanted us to write that in a log, right? And so what if we took that same approach with our lives and we accounted for every minute of our day? What would that show? I know that mine would show that I have a lot of idle time, a lot of time, right, that I keep to myself that I could be using, right, to share the gospel, right? So what if we're afraid about how people will respond? The woman didn't care. She went to the people who had thrown her out of their society, right? She went to the hard people. She didn't go to the easy people. She went to the people who had wronged her. She didn't care how they were going to respond, that Jesus, his transformation was so much more. She couldn't keep it in, right? She wasn't a theologian. All she could do was point to her transformed life, right? And so in the same way, if we think, I don't know what to say, you think the woman had every single answer? She didn't. All she could say is, hey, this guy told me everything that I had ever done. Right? She pointed to her life. But even, even if we have that excuse today that, hey, I, I don't have all the answers, right? Don't let that be an excuse 20 years from now. Right? If you don't have the answers today that somebody is asking, you have room to grow. Right? Dig in. Dive in. Understand who Jesus is and what he's teaching us, right? If that's your excuse today, don't let that be an excuse years from now, right? So that's application number one. Will we join in the work? Application two, right? This is building off the woman. Will we share with people who aren't like us? Will we share with people who aren't like us? Are we willing to share with people who aren't like us. Look at what Tim Keller says. He says, are we preaching the same gospel of grace as Jesus if we're not seeing the same people respond as Jesus did? Man, that's hard hitting. Are we preaching the same gospel of grace as Jesus if we're not seeing the same people respond as Jesus did? We have to remember that the gospel it's open to all, right? That there is no one so bad that they're without hope of a Savior. And so here is my fear for the church, both the big C global church here in America, but also local churches, right? Because this is what I see and this is what I hear, that we are sometimes more concerned, that we have more priority, we have more urgency towards culture war sort of things than we do for the gospel, Right? And I don't even have to turn on the news in order to witness that, to experience that. We hear it from our own pulpits. I heard this recently from even a local church here. The point of their sermon was that Satan wants to corrupt the family 
and thereby destroy the destiny of a culture. What is wrong with that? First of all, you're not going to find anything about a destiny of a culture in Scripture. But all that serves to do, right, it's putting a divide between us and them. It's saying, hey, they are out to get us, right? We have to protect ourselves, right? That causes us to label them, and we avoid people, right, that might fall into that camp. We avoid them like a typical rabbi would and walk on past the woman, right? We get offended by how they respond to us, right? We say they're too hostile. And even though we might not say it out loud, we're in effect judging who would respond to the gospel. So instead of that, we have to remember that that those people who attack the gospel, those people who might attack us because we believe the gospel, they're no different than that woman because they're dealing with their own wound, right? They're searching for living water to satisfy their thirst, and they don't know where to find it, and they haven't found it, right? The only way that they are going to satisfy their thirst is to come to the living water. Look at what David Brooks says. He's a New York Times columnist who came to faith a couple years ago, and he's speaking to Christians. He says, he says you shouldn't feel like people are attacking you, You shouldn't feel like you are a victim of society. You have what the world wants. We have what the world wants. And so when we hold back, for whatever reason, when we hold back from sharing the gospel, what that is showing is that we care more about our own needs and our own desires, right? That we've forgotten our own need of grace. We have to remember that we have tasted the living water, that we have encountered a holy God, that we have been transformed by his grace, and that's what should prompt us to action. Again, God has invited us into the work. There is no plan B. God is pursuing people who are far off from him, and he is using unlikely people like us to carry his gospel. So our last application, who is your one? Who is your one? Who is the one person that you are laser focused on sharing the gospel with? This is something that we try to frequently put in front of our students, that we try to remind them every week. Who is your one? Who is that family member, right? Who is that friend? Who is that coworker? But even who's that stranger that I have some contact with, right? Who is that one that God is calling me to share the gospel with? And so we want to keep this in front of us because we want to be intentional about it. If we're not intentional about it, we will go about our lives preoccupied with our own needs, right? And so we want to pray expectantly. We want to thank God for the opportunity that he's going to give us to share that gospel, right? He's going to give it to us. How do we know this? Because he says, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. The harvest is ready. The kingdom is here. Lift up your eyes. Who is your one? So as we close, let me close with this from J.C. Ryle. 
says, everyone who has received the grace of God and tasted that Christ is gracious ought to find words to testify to others. Where is our faith if we believe that souls around us are perishing and that Christ alone can save them and yet remain silent? Where is our charity if we can see others going down to hell and yet say nothing to them about Christ and salvation? Do we feel the supreme importance of spiritual things and the comparative nothingness of the things of the world? Do we ever talk to others about God in Christ, in eternity, in the soul, in heaven, in hell? If not, where is the value of our faith? Where is the reality of our Christianity? May God give us faith to be like that woman. Stand and pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your marvelous grace. Lord, we thank you that you have pursued us, that you pursued unlikely sinners undeserving of your grace. Lord, we know that you want to use broken vessels, broken people like us to share that grace. So God, captivate us by your grace. Make it to where we can't help but share your goodness. You've given us everything that we need in order to share your gospel with our friends, with our family, with the nations, right? Help us to lift up our eyes. Help us to look with spiritual eyes. Lord, you said the harvest is ready, Lord. Use us to bring in that harvest. We thank you and we love you. In the powerful name of Jesus.